This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Forgiveness is to forgive the situation that you had no control over. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm here with my guest, Jane. But welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Tiffany. I'm very happy to be here. And thank you for, you know, giving me the platform to um, share my story with everybody. Absolutely. It's a very inspiring story. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a victim of a violent crime. Uh, back in 1988, I went to a fair. I was seven months pregnant, 22 years old. And I was um, coming home. And it was so hot that summer. It was August 6th, 1988. Very hot, humid summer. So I decided to stop at a store, which was closed, but it had soda vending machines outside. Now, this is a community that is very small in New Hampshire, uh, Swansea, New Hampshire. Um, Back in 1988, virtually no major crime. And um, so I I just, I, I didn't see any reason or really never really crossed my mind that, you know, I shouldn't stop at that store. It was, it was just, uh, I stopped and, um, got out of my car. I got a soda out of the soda machine, uh, got back in my car and, uh, very, very like within a minute, I noticed a vehicle pull up beside my car and I didn't really pay much attention to it. Like I said, small community. Virtually no major crime, felt safe. I was 22, so, you know, that was also a contributor. Uh, So I sat there for a couple of seconds drinking my soda, and I was going to get ready to start my car and back up. And I noticed that in my rearview mirror that the person that pulled up beside me out of his vehicle and walked behind my car and came up to my car door. And he said, is the payphone working? Well, as he was saying that, he had opened my car door before I could even respond and um, tried to grab me and, and take me out of the car. And I just started screaming. I was kicking him. Um, I was doing everything I could to get him out of my car so I could take off. He eventually took a knife out and said, well, maybe this will persuade you to get out of your car, which it did. I got out of my car. At this point, I was kind of confused, like, who is this guy? What does he want? I was very adamant I was not going to go with him. And then he 
he said something odd. He was like, well, you beat up my girlfriend. And I was like, no, I didn't beat up anybody's girlfriend. And then he was like, well, isn't this a Massachusetts car? And I said, no. So he started, well, to back it up a little bit, while we were struggling in my car, I happened to kick my windshield and shattered my windshield because I was trying to kick him out of my car. So as we're outside, he kind of, he mentioned the license plate thing. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not from Massachusetts. These are New Hampshire plates. So he like walked to the back of my car, like he was looking at my plates. By this time, I'm really confused. Okay, what exactly does this guy want? Right. And the next thing I know, he he's walking back to his vehicle. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay. So he pulls me out of the car, confuses me with somebody else. I have a smashed windshield and he's walking back to his car like he was going to leave. And I said, I said these words, I regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, asshole, what about my windshield? And he turned around and came back to me, put a knife up against my neck. And we're standing there. And like a few seconds later, I see a vehicle coming down the road. Now, this is at night. This was like 11 o'clock at night. I see headlights and I see a vehicle coming down the road. Now, this I'm on a main road, uh, Route 10 in Swansea. And I knew... I was thinking in my mind, okay, the only way I'm getting out of this situation is I have to run to that road and scream and try to get their attention. So I did. I dashed for the road. And they just drove by. I screamed, hollered, jumped, waved, and they just drove by. And the next thing I know as I'm running towards the road, he tackled me down like a football player. And then he got on top of me and he proceeded to stab me. He ultimately stabbed me 27 times. I have a lot of defensive wounds because I was trying to protect my baby. I was seven months pregnant. And um, it, it felt like forever that he was stabbing me. But yeah, it was like, you know, it was just a matter of 30 seconds, maybe. and. He got up and he walked away. And I, I'm laying on the ground. I could feel the blood coming out of me. He ultimately, he stabbed me 27 times. I had two collapsed lungs. Uh, he lacerated my liver. He cut a tendon in my thumb and a tendon in my knee. He cut my juggler and my neck. So I was like, I heard him walk away. And as I was laying there, I could just feel the blood coming out of me. But I knew I had to go get help. So I somehow rolled over on my hands and knees and I started getting up. And he drove right by me, right by my head. And I looked right up at him and he looked right down at me. And he drove away. So I stumbled, finally got up, got to my car, got in my car. And I started heading down the road, tried to find help. And with a broken windshield. With a shattered windshield. Yes. 
Next thing I know, I, I had driven maybe not even a mile, and I was right behind him. And I said, oh, my gosh. All right. I also had a friend that lived two miles down the road, so I, I had planned on, I was planning on going to his house. I was like, he's going to see where I'm going. But at that time, I didn't care. I needed help. So I ended up pulling into my friend's driveway and stumbled to his stairs. And um, his front door was open. His screen door was shut. And he came to the screen door. And I said, you know, some asshole just stabbed the shit out of me and collapsed on his steps. And I mean, after that, I really don't remember too, too much. Rescue came. And uh, I survived, and uh, my baby survived. I ended up hearing her for another two months, which was miraculous. But I, I believe that I, I would never have survived if I was not pregnant. She, I, I truly believe she saved my life because she had such a will to survive, you know, that, that gave me the strength to survive. And um, Right. Very shortly after that, while I was in the hospital, I realized or I found out that I was also a victim. Or they believed at the time they were piecing it together that I have met maybe been the victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, um, which was he was a serial killer that was hitting going up and down the Connecticut River Valley, which borders New Hampshire and Vermont. And um, he was killing women. There was seven, seven or eight other women that were murdered. And then I quickly found out that I was the only survivor. Uh, so that was kind of, um, that was a shocker. Uh, it took me some time to process that. And unfortunately, to this day, um, my case and the, the other cases are unsolved. Were you able to give them like a depot, like what he looked like? Were you yeah. able to sketch anything? Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because while I was in the hospital, um, I obviously was, I was in there for quite some time. Um, I was on a ventilator because my two collapsed lungs, I was on a ventilator. So I couldn't speak. But the detectives really needed some inform information from me. And, and, you know, afterwards I thought about it as like they were, they came into the ICU room and they had this box of different slides of like eyes and mouth and, and noses and facial features and, and that, all that stuff. And so they were showing me slides and I had to like blink once for yes and blink two for no. And, and, um, so they actually put a composite together with these boxes of slides. Yeah. Afterwards, I thought about it. And it's like, why did they do that so quick? You know, and then I thought, oh, they weren't sure I was going to survive. So they had to try to get as much information from me as possible. I did give them information of the description of the vehicle to the first officer that arrived on the scene where I was before rescue got there because the police showed up before rescue. So I gave as much information as I could then. Um, so yeah, I, I did the composite in the hospital and um, 
for days or weeks or months, they generated that throughout the whole community and, and on the news and, and all that. So my family protected me a lot while I was in the hospital. You know, I was all over the news. I was on CNN and my story was being aired on WMUR, uh, the local news in New Hampshire and all the newspapers, um, just everywhere. And see, back then, they put the victims' names in the news. And they don't do that anymore, thank God. But back then, they put the victim's name in the news. And um, when I started seeing all the news clippings and all this stuff, I was like, and then I saw read in the paper that I was possibly a victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer and that the others hadn't survived. I was like, oh, my God. He knows where I am. He knows my name. He, you know, I am not safe. And um, so I lived with a lot of fear for a long time. You know, they while I was in the hospital, I had a security, uh, a police officer outside my door at all times. So they, you know, they had to come in and ask me, you know, if I knew a certain person that wanted to come in the room or whatever. And But when I went home, you know, I was like, so... <laughs> Is this guy coming home with me? <laughs> you know, am I going to have security right. at home? And no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> but they they had um, the local police do, um, you know, regular drive-bys by my house. Um, I was never alone, never alone for a long time. And um, for a long time, I lived in fear. I can only imagine. Are you yeah. still out there? Yeah, exactly. You know? And, um, you know, not to, you know, jump forward or anything, but my case and all the other cases still remain unsolved. Um, there's, they still haven't identified who it was, anything like that. They're still unsolved. There's no suspect. Um, cases have gone cold over the years, unfortunately. I, I was becoming a mom. And, and, um, I had my daughter and I had to bring some kind of normalcy back into my life. And so as time gradually went, you know, I started, um, living what I thought was a normal life. <laughs> Mental health was not spoke about as much 35 years ago as it is today. After my attack, I quickly went into like a mental survival mode because physically I, I fully healed physically. I, I healed fairly quickly too. mentally, not so much. And, um, for 20 years, I, I had no counseling. I had, you know, I was just trying to live what I thought was a normal life. And then I made, bad choices in my life. I ultimately stole from an organization I was a part of for 25 years that I love so much. And um, I ended up going to jail and I ended up um, becoming a felon. 
but I took full responsibility for, for my bad choices. But that time of my life, that was both um, probably the worst time of my life, but also a blessing in disguise. I, I was a, a really bad compulsive gambler, which contributed to me making a lot of these bad choices. When I went to court, they court ordered me to get counseling for my gambling, for my compulsive gambling. So I started doing counseling for that. My counselor was wonderful. She she really was. And, you know, I don't know, I was going to counseling for about two months when I finally brought up my my attack. She was like, oh, my God, Jane. <laughs> um Hello, we got to go down a different road now here. <laughs> She's like, right. uh, I want to clinically diagnose you with PTSD. And I was like, no, I, I, you know, PTSD are, you know, that's, that's servicemen and women that served overseas and saw and, and experienced, you know, unspeakable things. And so she went over the computer and she, she, she printed me out a, a paper with, um, most of the symptoms of PTSD. And she's like, you bring that home, you look at that, and then we'll talk next week. So I was like, all right. Just kind of blew it off, you know? It's like, you know, okay, so I have PTSD, whatever, you know. Didn't I didn't I didn't know what PTSD really was. And uh, a couple of days later I went in my pocketbook and I took out the paper and I read it. And uh, I sat there and I was like reading all these symptoms. And I'm like, holy crap. That was like an aha moment. It was a huge aha moment. I was like, holy, oh my God, I have PTSD. So I went in that following week and, and to my counselor and sat on the couch and I said, okay. I have PTSD. Now what? You know, like now what can we do about this? And um, she said, now we heal you. And I was like, what? So we get, we began the healing process. One of the things I, I really had a hard time with, I, I was always one to own up to my own mistakes, own up to my own bad choices. I never wanted to ever use my attack as an excuse for my bad choices. But she, you know, made me understand that my attack was a direct result of my addiction, which was a direct result of the bad choices that I did make. And um, when we started my healing process, I mean, we, I, I, it took me seven years to really, really uh, go through the process of my healing. Um, we, we, I completely stripped myself naked, completely stripped myself naked of everything. And I, I had to individually address every single symptom I had of PTSD. And, you know, that, turned me into such a different person than I was for the 20 years after my attack. You know, I, I, I finally became the person I always wanted to be. 
I, and that's when I realized, oh my God, I was for 20 years, I, <laughs> I was, I was not living a very normal life whatsoever. My life was anything but normal, but I didn't realize that. I did not realize that I was, I was living in a, like a survival mode, you know, my way of thinking, my way of, um, the things that I did, the things that I said, the, the way that I felt about a lot of things was not normal. But after, you know, receiving all the healing and, and the, the counseling and, and healing myself, you know, today I living a happy, normal life. There was a lot of stuff that I, I had to go through. For, for an example, you know, people don't realize what victims really go through after they They've gone through something really traumatic. It's like you don't just experience this trauma and just um, get over it. You know, it it, it rewires your brain. Oh, absolutely! You just don't get over it and move on. That that's not as much as I wish I could have. I couldn't. There's you don't. That's that's not how it works. You know, back in, it was like a couple of years after my attack, right after I had been on um, Unsolved Mysteries and with all the cases, with the Connecticut River Valley cases. And um, this was before social media and Facebook and emails and all that. I received hate mail. (laughs) What? People... Literally took time out of their lives to write me these horrible letters. Um, because you survived? <laughs> I evidently, I, with Unsolved Mysteries, I was playing the victim card. I, and that I should have taken responsibility for my bad choices with like stopping at that store at night to get a soda and putting my unborn child in danger. I oh, I had another letter saying that I should be reported to Child Protection Services and that I shouldn't even be a mom or have my child because I put my unborn child in danger. Oh, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> but when I got these letters... I, you know, I was already going through survivor's guilt, you know, so these letters I didn't tell anybody about for years. It was as if they were confirming everything I was feeling at that time, you know, well, maybe I am playing the victim card. Maybe I should have stopped at that store. Maybe I was neglectful and not thinking about my unborn child at the time. You know, I, I it was almost like it confirmed everything for me. So when I was doing counseling, the counselor had made a comment one day. She's like, you blame yourself in a certain way for your attack. Why? I don't understand that. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about survivor's guilt. And I said, well, I got letters. And she's like, letters. And I, I brought the letters in and um, and she read them. And she was like, 
these people just have no clue what you've gone through. Um, They've obviously not walked in your shoes. And she said, let's burn these. Let's burn these. Get rid of them. That was probably one of the most freeing things I ever done. Because it took so much. I felt so responsible for so many things that night. And when I burned those letters, it was a way for me to say, okay, let it go. You weren't responsible. You didn't ask to be attacked. You didn't ask for this this monster to insert himself into your life. You didn't ask to be, um, you know, stabbed 27 times. So we, it was, it was probably one of the best moments of my counseling was, um, yeah, doing that, doing that, burning those letters, you know, and and letting these people know what right do you have to judge me? (laughs) Uh, judge yourself first. (laughs) Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need you to judge me. Um, I don't, you don't have no right to judge me. And I'll say, maybe one of the listeners that wrote the letter, maybe one of them are one of your listeners that wrote those letters. So I will gladly say to you, if you wrote me those letters, they don't mean anything to me anymore. Stop judging people. You know, how dare you judge me when you weren't even there that night? And uh, so there, there's my message to you. My message is shame on you. And if that's the way you want to carry on, you can stop listening to my show. Because <laughs> that's bullshit. Yeah. But, th- you know, these are some of the things that victims go through. And people don't know. You know, I I went through a lot of depression and anger. And, you know, uh, another thing I had to do is I had to accept that I was attacked, fully accept it, and accept the fact that I had no control over it. You know, another thing I had to do was forgive. <laughs> that was so hard for me. It was like, I had for so many years, as so many people say, you know, you got to forgive. I'm like, forgive who? Yourself, forgive him. I can't forgive him. For one, I don't even know who the hell he is. For two, I don't think he's ever, you know, ever going to apologize or ever show any remorse for what he did. So who the hell do I forgive? And I kind of put that on the back burner for a few years. You know, the whole forgiveness thing. And then good old Oprah Winfrey was on one day. And it was ironic because I don't usually, I didn't usually watch her back then because I worked. And um, I happened to be home that day and and I was watching her show and she was um, talking to these two victims, um, these sisters that were victims of horrific things. And she said, started talking about forgiveness. And she said, forgiveness isn't about forgiving them. It's forgiveness is forgiving the situation that you had no control over. And that was huge. 
that was the breaking point. That was like, that was like huge. I, I totally connected to that. I said, oh my God, I can do that. I can completely forgive the situation that I had no control over. And um, I did that. I went to my counselor and I said, this is what we're going to do now. <laughs> and I did. I forgave. I For one, I did. I forgave myself for blaming myself for so long. And I forgave the situation I had no control over. I was just huge. I was huge. Yeah. Crazy how little things like that can just make such a huge impact on your life like that. Totally flip the script that you were telling yourself. Yeah. 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 It's, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like <sighs> my healing process was, it was so hard and um, lengthy. It, it was, it was seven years. Um, but today I look back at it and it's so rewarding. My life is so much better today. Is my life perfect? Heck no. <laughs> but nobody's life is perfect. Everybody has good and bad days. But my good days outweigh my bad days by far now. I still have symptoms of PTSD that pop up. But I have tools to address them now. And that that's a that's um that's huge. That is huge. I don't I don't allow my PTSD to take over my life anymore. You know, I own my life. I I own my destiny, my future, and and I don't allow my PTSD to do that anymore. You know, it's um it's Good been very you. rewarding. You know, and my daughter, she, she is just absolutely amazing. She um. She's always been there through all my good and bad, always encouraging me to be a better person every day, always um, cheering me on. She's she's just amazing. She's been through a lot also. Um, she has some neurological issues that that she struggles with. But she blessed me with a, a granddaughter. And she's just the most amazing mom, the most amazing mom. And uh, I sit sometimes and I watch her and my granddaughter together, whether they're reading a book or playing a game or listening to music or or whatever. My granddaughter's like wicked into doing YouTube videos and um, they'll sit there and edit them together. And, and I sit there and watch them. It's like, how blessed am I? You know, had I not survived or had my daughter not survived, my life would have been so different. And I'm just, I'm just so blessed to, you know, have both of them in my life today. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to be alive too. Very, very grateful. Yes, you're, you are blessed. That's for sure. I am. Because yeah. he probably thought he was leaving you there to die. Oh yeah. 
I, I believe that too. I believe that too. Yeah. But my daughter, she said, <laughs> we were, um, during COVID, the big lockdown, you know, stay at home orders or whatever. Um, we started listening to some podcasts and, uh, she she punched in Connecticut River Valley cases, and there was a couple of case, a uh, couple of podcasts that were covering that we were listening to, and then she punched in my name, and there was quite a few podcasts that came up with that, and so we're listening to these different podcasts, and she's uh, my daughter is like, oh my god, mom. Half the stuff they have on there isn't even correct. Don't they do their research? And she's like, oh. she's like, that never happened. And why aren't they talking about this? And why are they talking about that? So she turned around, she looked at me and she was like, we, you need to do a podcast. You need to tell your story. And, um, I was like, I, I like my technology with a cell phone is is a challenge for me. Never mind do a podcast. And um, I, my best friend's son, he's like really intelligent. And like, I said, all right, Jess, if, if I do a podcast, you know, we got to get some technical help here. And, and she just immediately, she's like, how about Drew? And uh, that was my best friend's son. And she's like, let's get a hold of him. And um, ironically, I got a hold of him and his wife, Amanda. And they're like, oh, my God, we were thinking about starting a podcast, too. And so we we started collaborating and and we ended up we ended up putting together and starting Invisible Tears. And uh, it was I absolutely love it. It's um, it gives me a platform to not only tell my story, but help others. Uh, we talk about, you know, PTSD, trauma. At first it was, um, you know, we were going to, you know, dive more into true crime, which we still do. We talk about true crime on the podcast, but then I started was like, you know what? I want to, I want to help that one person out there that feels the way I did for 20 years after my attack. You know, I want to, I want to be able to help that one person. And, um, so as we were doing the, the podcast and, uh, the episode started coming out, we started getting emails like almost immediately, you know, from women and people telling me, Oh my God, you, I've never felt so heard. Um, they're telling me, you know, your story's miraculous and I've gone through trauma and because of you, I have never received counseling and I, I called a counselor up and I'm receiving counseling now and I'm starting my healing process. And we just started getting emails like crazy. I was like, Oh my God, this is what I, this is why I wanted to do this podcast. This is why I wanted to do invisible tears. And and um, I also wanted to do it to to give the victims that no longer have a voice a voice, um, the ones that didn't survive, um, give them a voice. And um, so the journey, the journey with uh, Invisible Tears has has also been, 
you know, healing for me also, you know, um, helping with my healing. But to know that I'm also helping others is just a bonus. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's an amazing feeling that I'm helping others because I know what it was like for 20 years. I mean, I hid everything for 20 years after my attack. I hid, you know, all my symptoms of PTSD, or I tried to hide most of them. I hid my gambling. I hid all my bad choices I was making. I I just, I was not a good person for 20 years after my attack. So I know that somebody that's so afraid to, um, you know, receive counseling because of their trauma or, you know, feels like that they don't have any hope with any kind of healing. Me being able to tell my story and letting people know that, you know, you're not alone and uh, I know how you feel and I've been there and, you know, healing is rewarding and it does, um, you know, change your life quite a bit. That's just, I'm grateful that I'm able to do that for others. And, and share my sharing my story. Yeah, I mean it is rewarding because it's almost like you get to hit the restart button. You know, like you programmed your mind and your body and everything with all this negativity and anger and hatred and just like stiffness. And once you can actually start working that through. Holy shit. You're like, I'm lighter and I'm Lucy and I'm happy. (laughs) You know, it's so important. That's why I love exactly what I do because this is, I'm on the same journey and like, let's all heal together. Let's be better. Yeah. That's so important. And my relationships with everybody is so much better with my family and my kids and I'm a better mother now and I'm a better wife now and a better friend. And I'm just, um, you know, my relationships are so much more healthier. It's nice not to be so angry all the time. You know, I didn't realize how angry and miserable I was to be around. And it's, it's, it's like, some of my friends, they just, they've always been behind me and been there for me. And I'm like, how the heck did you guys tolerate me all those years? <laughs> but they love me and they, you know, now they get to see the best of me. Exactly. And yeah. I'm sure they know that this, what happened to you, helped shape who you were at that point in time, because it's going to do that. It rewires your brain. It rewires everything. After trauma like that, no one's usually ever the same ever again Mm -hmm. until you do the work. Yeah, exactly. You got to find yourself again, your new self. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, once I was attacked, the person I was before my attack, she was gone. You know, I was mm-hmm. trusting and carefree and spontaneous. And, um, you know, I wasn't paranoid. I wasn't angry. I wasn't depressed. I was, 
You know, I was a happy 22-year-old getting excited about being a new mom for the first time. And, and um, you know, I was, I didn't think about, you know, being scared all the time or paranoid. And, you know, so at, once I was tapped, that person I was before my attack, she was gone. And then I became this new person, this angry person and paranoid person and scared and depressed. And, and I had, I was that person for 20 years. And then I, I was able to revert to, you know, the person I am today, a happy person. And, you know, I wake up every day and the first thing I say is, okay, I woke up today. I'm grateful. And then I say, Today, I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. Doesn't always work. <laughs> Most of the time, I like to think I, I am a better person today than yesterday. But, um, you know, that's that's what I strive for every day. And um, I also never forget that bad days are temporary. You have a bad day or you have a bad moment. They're so temporary because, you know, I, I attempted suicide a few times and I think back and it, it's just things can change in a split second, in a moment. You could be having a bad moment or a bad day. Tomorrow's a whole new day. You know, things could be better tomorrow. Problems aren't forever. Uh, they're temporary. And I remember that every day too. You know, if I'm having a bad day, like I did yesterday, I had a very bad day yesterday. Um, but I, I, you know, I reminded myself, what well, it's temporary. And uh, woke up today, and I feel great. And I'm, I, I'm on this wonderful podcast today, telling my story again. And so, you know, everything is temporary. Yes, I love that. Because so many people get stuck in this negativity ball and they can't seem to get out of it and feel like there is no way out of it. But you you do you gotta flip the script because if all you're telling yourself is negative, 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 what do you think is gonna happen? Only negative things. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean it's gonna be a lifelong journey. Healing is not done in a twelve hours or twelve years or it's lifelong, but it's yeah. so worth it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very rewarding. Yes, yeah, you I got agree. your life back. Yeah. Yes. Was there so, any attacks after you? Do you know? Or did he kind of stop after that? Do they know? It's as if it stopped. Um, you know, everybody has theories. Did he move away and continue to, you know, stalk and, and kill women elsewhere? Or did he go to jail? Or um, is, he in, is he dead? You know, there's there's all kinds of theories. Um, but as far as we know, my attack was the last one. As far as we know. Gotcha. He's like, shit, she lived. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, I did. I, I was kind of curious um, a few years ago about you know serial killers and what they're like, and um, I wanted to know what their biggest fear was, and uh, so I looked it up and um, read quite a few articles of people that had um, interviewed serial killers. One of their biggest fears is um, getting caught. So I was like, okay, I survived. So that's going to scare the hell out of them because I can identify them, obviously. Or I, I should hope I could. So I'm thinking, all right, so all these years, he's probably living in fear that one day with um, the evidence they gathered off my car, he would be caught. So that's kind of a little justice for me, you know, him living in a little bit of fear all these years that he may have a knock on his door that, you know, oh, we know that we know what you did. And so that's a little, little retribution for me, but yeah, but he's the one looking over his shoulder all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Did you get any DNA or anything like in your fingernails? Do they have anything to work off yeah, of yeah. if there's someone they think? Yeah, they did scrape underneath my fingernails. Um, and they've sent it out for forensics, and nothing really came back conclusive. Um, but um, I was just recently told that every few years, forensics goes further and further and further um, with technology. So um, they're supposed to be sending that out again in hopes of... Um, you know, finding something with that. They did lift fingerprints. Um, they believe that there's one set that has not been able to be identified. So they run that through CODIS every few years. Obviously, if he's never been arrested or doesn't have a record or got a job where he had to be fingerprinted through the database, his the fingerprints aren't going to get a hit. But they they try to run them every few years. I don't know. I haven't really had the best relationship <laughs> with the authorities. New Hampshire is, uh, oh, how should I say this? They have a very large list of unsolved, missing, and cold cases. One of the worst in the country unfortunately. And so I have actually been connected up with like um, Maura Moore's sister, Julie, Julie and Fred. And um, another case that I did a, a episode on is Trish Haynes, um, her, her family and her advocates. Um, Trish, Trish Haynes cases frustrating because you know she was um she went missing her body was found in a wash and dryer unit in the bottom of a pond and the people that held her almost like captive for a few months 
everybody knows they're the ones that killed her. Obviously, the washer and dryer came from their home. <laughs> and um, there's so much evidence that, that they killed her. Uh, they There's so many witnesses that she was treated so horribly when she was living with them, um, physically and mentally. And um, the authorities refused to arrest this couple. They they keep saying they don't have enough evidence. So her family is um, advocating for her her case and for her justice quite a bit. And uh, I I happened to meet with them. They did a rally. They do a rally every year up at the Capitol in New Hampshire and Concord. So I got connected up with them, and now uh, I connected uh, myself with Trish Haynes' family and Maura Mora's family, and we're all doing, we're getting together with other people, and we're going to be doing a march up to the um, state capitol to the AG office uh, this summer in August. And, you know, we, we we want them to do their job. You know, we want them to, you know, take it seriously. Yeah. The, the, the way they've treated these families has been horrible. I mean, I haven't, my case is in the cold case unit, supposedly. I mean, it took me a couple of months to find it. My case has been up there for 35 years. And over the years, with all the new people coming into the cold case unit, new eyes looking at these cases, you know, new people, you know, investigating these cases, they never contact me. You know, you would think they would have new questions. You know, oh, Jane's the only survivor of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. We should re-interview her. You know, let's re-interview her. Let's, you know... Find out, you know, maybe we got new questions that, you know, we haven't asked her yet. Or maybe she remembers something she didn't remember back then. Or, you know, I have no, I've had no contact with them at all. And um, so the, the, we're all getting together and um, we're going to march up to that state capitol and to the AG office and we're hoping that they'll have a sit down with us, um, allow, allow us to share our concerns, and hopefully they can give us some, you know, answers. Give us, you know, be like, okay, we're going to start investigating, or this is what our plans are to go forward, you know, with this case and that case and that case, because they, they, they're, they're. I don't even know how to describe it and be nice about it. <laughs> they just um they're 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 being yeah, negligent. they're negligent, their lack of communication with the families is horrible. Um these families just in the past few months are on their third victim advocate. I've never been given a victim advocate. Um, it's just, uh, we're just asking them to do their job, you know, do their job. And I don't think that's much right. to ask. Right. Um, I think there's been a lot of missed opportunities with solving the, 
um, Connecticut River Valley cases. Um, Trish Haynes case should be solved. Those people should be in jail. There is um, plenty of evidence to convict them, more than enough evidence to convict them. Um, unfortunately, they're in jail, but not connected to her case, um, not not connected to Trish at all. Mara Mora's case, she's been missing for how long? And um, the family has fought for so many answers. Um, they've been in and out of court, you know, just trying to get answers so that they can, um, if, the, if the AG office and the cold case unit don't want to investigate like they should, you know, give their family the information they need so they can conduct their own investigation. You know, what will it hurt? More is still missing. It's been 19 years. There's still no, um, you know, no conviction, no person of interest or um, anything like that with Maura's case. What would it hurt to give the family the information they need to conduct their own investigation to possibly find answers or find Maura? <laughs> You know, that's all they want to do is, you know, find their family right. member that's been missing for 19 years. So we uh, and also um, my co-host, Amanda, and I come across another case, Bethany and her mom, uh, Tina Sinclair. Uh, they're from Chesterfield, New Hampshire. They've both been missing for uh, almost 18 years they know who did who who they know they're murdered. They know that they're not alive, and they know who did it. Um, but their case still remains unsolved, and their bodies still haven't been found. And the unfortunate thing about that is, because years have gone by, their advocates have since passed away. Um, Tina's mom and her sister has since passed away and they were their two biggest advocates. So me and my co-host Amanda are going to start advocating for Tina and and her daughter and for their case. So we're going to start really getting into advocating for more victims that don't have a voice and um you know start start holding New Hampshire authorities accountable for their lack of um, investigating and their lack of, you know, sharing information and start, you know, working on these cases the way they should. You know, there's so much technology today. There's so much forensics today. There's there's just so much, and there's no reason for these cases to be so unsolved. It's it's still after so many years. So, yeah, I'm kind of on a. Um, a mission to change that. <laughs> well, I love it. I, good for you. We need more of that because I mean, come on, these are people's loved ones, their families, you know, like have yeah. compassion, have empathy. What if it was your daughter? What if it was your mother? Exactly. You know, you would want answers. So, I mean, and you're right. Mm -hmm. Look at what genealogy nowadays. Oh my God. Like, we are blowing stuff out of the park. Like we have come so far. I say now, like if you commit a crime, you're an idiot <laughs> because 
literally, we don't even have to find you. We need to find like your third cousin from somewhere else. We have a saying in New Hampshire. If you want to commit a crime and get away with it, come to New Hampshire. (laughs) Come to New Hampshire. (laughs) You want to commit murder? Come to New Hampshire. You'll get away with it. No, I don't. I don't mean to. Please don't do that. (laughs) Please don't do that. But um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 not good here in New Hampshire. It's um, you know, they just and they don't want to work with other states which is frustrating because some of the victims in New Hampshire, some of the victims of the Connecticut River Valley cases, some are New Hampshire, some are Vermont. And New Hampshire is not very willing to work with Vermont. Well, you're looking for the same serial killer. (laughs) Why would you not want to work together? (laughs) You know, so it's uh, it's frustrating right. as hell. Frustrating as hell. Yeah. Oh, very. Because they could have evidence that ties both together. What if they do have some magical DNA or something over there? Well, it, that's back in the eighties, when these bodies started showing up, they did form a task force between New Hampshire and Vermont. They formed a task force for a few years. Uh, and these were with the original detectives. Um, but just they just couldn't. The cases still remained um, unsolved. The leads went cold. So after that, and the cases started going into the cold case unit, um, you know, New Hampshire has their own cold case unit and Vermont has their own cold case unit. It was like once they went into the cold case units is when they, all of a sudden they weren't working together. New Hampshire wasn't working with Vermont. Um, They weren't looking into, you know, possibly new leads that were connecting, you know, the cases together. And, you know, that kind of frustrating, you know, it was like, I've had so many people, um, contact me and say, you know, I know who did this. I've been, I've been investigating the Connecticut River Valley killers killer for 10 years, 15 years. You know, I I know who did this. I figured it out. And, you know, or other people contact me and say, you know, I have information I would love to give you. And I'd be like, you know, you got to bring this information to Concord state police or the detective unit or the cold case unit. And I'd give them all the information to bring the info to. Next thing I know, these people are at my front door giving me this information. And I'm like, I can't do anything more with that information than you can. You know, I, I the only thing I can tell you is to bring it up to the authorities up in Concord. And they're all like, well, we have, but we're not hearing back from them. You know, we're trying to contact them by phone and they're not returning my calls or, you know, I have more info and, and I'm not, you know, they're not reaching out to me or whatever. So they're literally coming to my house. And I just got really, you know, frustrated with them with that, not with the people that came to my house, but with the, the authorities in Concord. And I, I, 
you know, I'll call them up and be like, you know, I, you guys get this information because I got these people knocking on my door. I had one lady drive six hours from New York just to tell me she knew who my attacker was. And I was like, I'm sorry. I mean, I understand you have this information, but there's nothing I can do with it. You know, I'm not a detective. I'm not the the authorities. You really got to bring it to Concord. And and she was like, oh, I, I sent all this stuff up to Concord like nine months ago, and I still haven't heard from them. So it was like, I had to contact Concord and say, you know, wow. okay, you may not want to give them information, these people that come knocking on my door, but can you just at least let them know that you received the information? So they'll start coming and knocking on my door, right? <laughs> you know? And um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite the journey. I can only imagine. I mean, I would still start like a notebook of everything that they tell you. And just so you have a little piece of it in case somebody decides to do something with it. (laughs) But I mean, good for you. I'm, I'm happy that you're still in the fight. I think you're doing amazing things. Especially now that I've done so much healing, I have the strength to start speaking up and saying, you know, okay, this is not okay. And, and the public needs to know that, you know, this is going on. And I'm sure with our March that we have in August, more people are going to come forward and say, oh my God, my family member was a victim too. And they're treating me the same way. And, you know, hopefully more people will come forward with this information so that, you know, others know that, okay, wow, this is happening in New Hampshire and this is not okay. And, and you know, they need to change right. some things, you know. They need to change some things. Absolutely. I think mm-hmm. we need that worldwide. But absolutely start in your hometown and hope it can just, it can go everywhere else as well. Because everybody is in need of some little extra help. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Is there anything else that you wanted to add that you want people Um, to know or... Where's your My podcast, podcast on is all, all on all platforms and Invisible Tears. Uh, we have Facebook, Invisible Tears Podcast. Um, uh, we have a link tree. If you hit on the link tree, uh, you'll see where Insta. Uh, see, I don't do all the social media stuff. Amanda and Drew do. They're my editor and my producers and so they do, they do hear about my social media stuff, but I know we have Instagram, um, TikTok, uh, YouTube, and we have Facebook. And so if you hit our link tree, it'll connect you to, um, wherever we are, all our platforms. Um, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and, uh, we're sponsored um, and and work closely with um, Glassbox um, 
And we also just launched, well, I didn't launch it, but I worked very closely with uh, Genomel and Crowdspace Media um, with a new project, Dark Valley. That's a podcast that just, they just launched last week. Um, you can find them uh, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Um, Dark Valley covers a lot of um, the Connecticut River Valley cases. Uh, they get, um, Jen does an amazing job with um, uh, her investigative journalism with the podcast. Uh, she's interviewed several family members and uh, her podcast is amazing. I just heard it for the first time. Uh, last week. Amazing, amazing podcast. So um, don't forget to check that out. And um, yeah, between Invisible Tears and Dark Valley, uh, you'll hear my story and others. And uh, we also, we go on quite a bit and let people know, you know, what our events are, where we're going to be, what we're doing for upcoming events. So yeah. Very good. Awesome. And I'll make sure to check those out too. Well, thank you very (laughs) much. Thank you very much for letting me share my story. And it was great meeting you. Thank you. It was great meeting you too. Oh, absolutely. keep fighting the fight. Absolutely. Yep. You will find all links for her and myself at the bottom of the show notes. Thank you so much to all my listeners and people who have liked, followed, and subscribed. I really appreciate it, and you do make a difference. For the month of July, the Deluxe Network podcast of the month is In a Pickle, where they talk about pickleball, and then there's also Growing Up Bananas. This podcast is about Asian immigrants, but they really say any kind of immigrant, and how you have the internal battle with staying true to your culture or adapting All those can be found on your favorite podcast platforms, so go check them out. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye.